Good morning, everyone. It's really nice to be back here with you all again. Um, and I'm really excited to launch us into this new Advent series. Actually, this is my the second year in a row I have the privilege of launching the Advent series. Um, <laughs> so if you were here a year ago, I preached on Exodus 3, where God encounters um, Moses in the burning bush. It's a pretty atypical Advent passage. Um, but today we're going to look at a much more traditional Advent passage, as Jason just said. We're going to look at four different characters the next four weeks from the birth story of Jesus, and today we're going to talk about Mary. So uh, we're going to be in Luke 1 today because Luke is actually the only one of the gospel writers who tells us how Mary experienced Jesus' birth. Um, you know, so we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and it's interesting because each of them starts differently. Mark starts with Jesus as an adult. It actually starts with John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River and, and calling people to repentance. John doesn't start with Jesus' birth. He goes all the way back to the creation of the world, and he alludes to Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1 says, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John has this poetic beginning that points to Jesus' eternal identity. Matthew and Luke, however, are a little more um, traditional, normal. They start with how Jesus was born. Um, but Matthew tells the story from Joseph's point of view. Luke tells the story from Mary's point of view. And Luke actually also tells us the birth story of John the Baptist. So he kind of puts the birth stories of Jesus and John the Baptist side by side. So we're going to look at Luke 1, uh, verses 26 to 38. And this is when Gabriel comes to Mary. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. And, you know, in this digital age of, you know, scrolling and streaming and all this stuff, I know that all of our attention spans tend to be a little diminished. And I also have trouble sometimes not zoning out when people are reading familiar passages of scripture. So I just encourage you, if you'd like to, to engage your imagination as I read and perhaps envision the story or put yourself in the shoes of Mary or Gabriel. All right, Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So Mary is probably the second most famous person in the Bible. Um, I would say, you know, obviously Jesus is the most well-known, but then probably after Jesus would come Mary, Jesus' mother. But at this moment in the passage we just read, when Gabriel comes to Mary, Mary um, is nobody. She's just an ordinary girl. She's about as ordinary as it gets. Her name, Mary, was by far the most common female Jewish name at that time. Uh, we can actually see evidence of this in the Gospels themselves because you may have noticed there's a f several different people named Mary. There's this Mary, there's Mary Magdalene, there's uh, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There's another Mary who shows up at the tomb of Jesus. So it's a lot of Marys. It was a very common name, very ordinary. And Mary's hometown, Nazareth, was an obscure, unimportant place. Um, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in any Jewish or rabbinic literature. And actually, no church was built there, even though it was the birthplace of Jesus. No church was built there until the time of Constantine, which was about 300 years after Jesus. Um, in John 1, when the disciples are telling each other about Jesus, they say, oh, this guy's from Nazareth. And one of them says, what good can come from Nazareth? It was, um, yeah, Mary, Mary, her name was ordinary. Her hometown was unimportant. There was really nothing that special about her. And even the description of her in this passage, it might have been hard for you to imagine what Mary looked like because we don't really hear much about her. We just find out she's engaged to Joseph and she's a virgin. Not very special because that's basically what was expected of all girls at that time. You would be a virgin and then you would get married. So. Mary is plain, ordinary, and unimportant. You know, in LA, a lot of people are, care about being seen, being seen in a certain way. It's kind of a flashy town. Um, that was not Mary. She was the opposite of flashy. You know, I'm a millennial, so millennials, we care a lot about being special and being different, um, standing out. We want to accomplish great things. That wasn't Mary either. She probably didn't expect to do anything extraordinary with her life, and I bet she was fine with that. And yet Mary is the first person to hear the good news that the Messiah is about to be born, the very first. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary and gives this grand announcement to this ordinary girl. And even his greeting is grand. Gabriel says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary is deeply puzzled. She's probably thinking, what are you talking about? I'm just an ordinary girl. But you know who wasn't ordinary? Zechariah. All right, quick Bible knowledge pop quiz. Who is Zechariah in the New Testament? I know none of you are going to say it out loud, but I'm sure some of you are thinking the correct answer. He is the father of John the Baptist. So it's interesting because, as I mentioned, Luke tells the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus' birth side by side. So in the passage right before what we just read, Gabriel goes first to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. Before Gabriel goes to Mary, he goes to Zechariah. And Luke puts these angelic encounters side by side in a way that really highlights this contrast between what happens with Zechariah and Gabriel and what happens with Mary and Gabriel. So Zechariah 
It's basically the opposite of Mary. Zechariah had high standing in society because Zechariah was a priest. Now, these days, it's um, kind of special to be a pastor, maybe, depending on your point of view. But basically, anybody can be a pastor. You should be called by God, but anybody can be called. You can be an English teacher one day and a preacher the next, or, or you can be a lead singer in a band one day and a lead pastor the next. <laughs> but you know that's not how it worked with Jewish priests. It wasn't like, oh, I think I'm called to be a priest. No, this was predetermined from your birth. Only men from a certain tribe in Israel could be priests. So if you remember all the way back in like Exodus, Numbers, the time of Moses and Aaron, God sets apart one tribe of 12 tribes of Israel, and they are the ones who minister in the temple, the tribe of Levi. And that happens to be Aaron and Moses' tribe. Um, so the, the men of that tribe, they're like the musicians in the temple. They deal with the you know, various things in the temple, <laughs> the doormen, whatever. They do all the things in the temple. And then only some of them are priests. Only the descendants of Aaron are priests. So Zechariah was a priest. That means he was a descendant of Aaron through Abijah, Luke tells us. They really kept track of these lineages. Zechariah has a holy anointed lineage. Not only that, he's married to a woman named Elizabeth, my namesake, who is also a descendant of Aaron. She's also from the priestly line. So basically, both Zechariah and Elizabeth came from this holy special lineage. They were like a religious power couple. <laughs> and not only that, Luke tells us that they were very good people as well. They lived righteous lives. So Zechariah was a righteous, anointed, godly man, not just a man, but a priest. He was the kind of person that you would expect to have an angelic encounter. And if you're going to have an angelic encounter, what more fitting place than the temple, the special place where God's presence dwelt. Nowadays, we all have access to the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus and because of Jesus, we have direct access to God's presence at all times. But back then, before Jesus' resurrection, before Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, God's presence primarily dwelt in the temple. Um, you know, people could pray to God, and sometimes the Holy Spirit would come upon people in a special way. Um, but generally, God's presence didn't dwell inside of people the same way it does now. So in one sense, God is omnipresent, right? He's in all places at once. But in another sense, God's presence is with us in a special way in particular moments. For example, Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with them. Well, before Jesus' resurrection and before Pentecost, God's presence particularly dwelt in the temple. That was the place that the Israelites built for God's spirit to rest. When people wanted to experience God, they went to the temple. It was a special, sacred place. It was, in fact, the only place people were supposed to worship God. So if you were to have an angelic encounter, the temple would be the most fitting place. And that's exactly where Zechariah encounters Gabriel. Zechariah is chosen by Lot, so they, like, he drew the short straw or whatever, and he's chosen to have the special opportunity to go into the holy place of the temple and offer incense. This is a huge honor, possibly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And while he's doing that, the angel Gabriel appears and says, your prayers have finally going to be answered. You are going to have a son. And Zechariah is very startled. He doesn't know how to respond. And he says, how can I believe you, though? because my wife and I are too old to have children. 
So Gabriel says, okay, you don't believe me? You're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. What a contrast with what happens with Mary. Mary is just an ordinary, plain girl who could probably be easily confused with a dozen other Marys in her small town. She doesn't encounter Gabriel in the temple, but in some unspecified location that is um, in her small town. The exact place the encounter happens is so unimportant, it's not even mentioned. She could be in a field, she could be in a barn, we don't even know. But Zechariah, the priest, is the one who freaks out and doesn't know how to process his supernatural encounter. He's a religious leader who has a divine encounter in the holiest of places, and yet he questions and he doubts. While the ordinary girl from nowhere responds with faith. This young girl, Mary, becomes a model for all of us of what trusting God can look like. Priest Zechariah is rebuked for his lack of faith and made temporarily mute, while unassuming Mary is commended. In Luke 1.45, after the passage we read, the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she says to Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Zechariah, the religious leader, the priest, doesn't know how to embrace a miracle when it comes to him. He doesn't know how to make sense of what God is doing when God works outside of the box that he has put God in. But Mary, this young girl, does. She trusts. She simply says, yes. In verse 38, Mary says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. It's a statement of faith, of willingness, of agreement with what God has planned. It's a statement of longing and excitement to be a part of what God is doing. It's a deceptively simple statement. I am a servant of the Lord, Mary says. May it be unto me as you have said. It's a beautiful answer, but it's also such a perfect answer that it's almost hard to relate to. It's like a Sunday school answer. Personally, it's easier for me to relate to someone like Moses, who makes excuses when God calls him. So a year ago, I preached on this passage where God encounters Moses in a burning bush and calls him to deliver his people from Egypt. As you might recall, when God says, I'm sending you, Moses, to free my people, Moses does not respond, I am a servant of the Lord. No. Moses says, who am I that you should send me? I'm not good at talking. Don't choose me. What if they ask me what your name is? What if they ask me something that I don't know? What if they don't believe me? What if I stumble when I speak? You know, Mary could have made excuses too. She could have said, I'm nobody. I'm not even married. Who will believe me when I say that I'm pregnant outside of marriage because the power of the Most High overshadowed me? What are the chances that Joseph will still marry me? What if I'm left all alone? But she doesn't say any of that. However, neither does Mary jump straight into her yes. First, the passage tells us Mary ponders Gabriel's words. If we go back to the beginning of their conversation, Mary's first reaction is that she's puzzled and she ponders. She ponders Gabriel's strange greeting. She ponders what it means when Gabriel calls her favored and says God is with her. Then after Gabriel's grand announcement about her son, instead of making excuses, Mary asks a clarifying question. How will this happen since I'm a virgin? Literally, I have never known a man. She is aware of some of the technical challenges of this prophecy coming true. She asks a clarifying question. 
But after she hears Gabriel's answer and his assurances, after she hears that her relative Elizabeth is going through something similar, and another miraculous pregnancy, Mary simply says yes. She doesn't say, but still, this is too much for me. She's confident. She rises to the occasion. I'm a servant of the Lord, she says. May what you have said about me be so. Mary doesn't get caught up in her own insecurities or in false humility. She doesn't make excuses or explain to Gabriel why someone else should have this honor. She simply accepts it. Mary shows us this beautiful, powerful, though subtle picture of humble confidence, humble obedience. You know, it's very easy to go to one extreme or the other, to be self-deprecating like Moses, or to be kind of arrogant and a little too confident, like, oh, of course, God chose me. But Mary shows us how beautiful it can be to be both humble and confident, to be humbly confident. Being humbly confident looks like being unselfconscious. It looks like not being so worried about yourself and your limitations. It looks like trusting God with all of the unknowns. It looks like simply saying yes to God. Moses focused on his deficiencies and his fears. So did Zechariah. Zechariah's first thought was of his limitations, how he and his wife were too old to have children. Those are very relatable reactions. But Mary shows us that we have another option. There are plenty of limitations and deficiencies Mary could have focused on here, but she doesn't. Instead, Mary is humbly confident before God. And I believe that Mary is able to be humbly confident because instead of focusing on herself and her limitations, she's focused on what God is saying through Gabriel. When we get self-consciousness out of the way, when we stop being distracted by our limitations and our fears, we are better able to hear what God is actually saying and see what God is doing. Mary wasn't focused on herself, but on God's message. She realized that God was bringing good news. You know, God brought good news to Moses back in Exodus when he announced, I'm gonna free your people. It was great news. But Moses couldn't really hear that good news. He couldn't absorb or celebrate the message God was bringing because, you know, even though it was something he had longed for all of his life, he was just too busy being afraid. God brought good news to Zechariah. The angel tells him that his prayers have been heard. Finally, he and his wife are gonna have a son. This is what they've been longing for for decades. It's great news. But Zechariah is so focused on his limitations and the limitations that he has put on God that he isn't able to hear this good news and celebrate. He isn't able to believe it. Mary hears. Gabriel tells her, your son is going to reign on the throne of his father David forever. He is going to be called the son of the most high. And Mary hears this and ponders. She listens. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the most high is going to overshadow you. The child to be born to you will be holy. And Mary listens and absorbs. And she's like, wow. Her son is going to be a great man. Her son is going to be called the son of God. Her son is going to reign on King David's throne forever. Her people are currently suffering under the oppressive rule of the Romans. This is huge news. Her son is going to be the leader that her people need. Her son is going to be the Messiah, the savior her people have been longing for. Mary hears Gabriel's message and realizes that it is a huge honor to bear this child. 
And she also realizes that this news is not just about her. It's about so much more than her. This is going to change things for her people. And perhaps she doesn't realize it, but for the whole world. Mary is humble enough, unselfconscious enough to really hear Gabriel. She hears the good news. And that empowers her to have the confidence to say yes to participating in it. I really admire Mary's response to Gabriel here. I really admire her simple faith. I'm inspired by her. I can ov often overcomplicate what it means to follow God, but Mary reminds me of the power of simple faith, of simple trust in God, of simply listening and taking God at his word, of leaving the complications to God. You know, when I first reread this passage to prepare for this sermon, it struck me deeply in a deeper way than before what a vulnerable position God put Mary in. Um, I think it's because I've learned more about the historical context of these passages and perhaps because I happen to have been reading the book of Deuteronomy lately, but I just understand more fully what a risky situation this was for Mary and I feel the weight of it more. Because back in Mary's day, a woman's virginity was so important. It was like what all of a single woman's worth was tied to. Getting pregnant outside of marriage can still be seen as pretty shameful, especially in Christian contexts or in Asian contexts, since a lot of us are Asian. Um, and it's a shame that often only the woman has to bear. But back in this time, it was even more serious. The stakes were even higher for women because this was a very patriarchal society. So women were not seen as equal to men. They, couldn't, they weren't educated. They didn't have much opportunity for independence. Their main role was to bear children, to bear heirs for their husbands. So it was very important that a woman maintain her virginity before marriage. Because if she wasn't a virgin, how could her husband be sure that the children she gave birth to were really his? They didn't have DNA tests back then. And he would not want to give his inheritance to some other man's son. In Deuteronomy, there are laws stating that if a husband is displeased with his wife and accuses her of not being a virgin when they got married, her parents must provide proof of her virginity. Otherwise, she can be stoned to death. It was a very serious matter. So I couldn't help asking, how could God ask this of Mary? To put herself in that risky of a situation. She didn't know how Joseph was going to react, and if Joseph hadn't married her, she could have been disgraced for life. And I couldn't help asking, how could Mary say yes so easily? Thinking about all that, I was blown away by Mary's courage in risking her reputation and well-being to say yes to God here. She makes it seem so simple, but underneath her simple yes is a mountain of courage. She was trusting God with a lot. There was a lot on the line for her. However, as I reflected on the passage more, my admiration for Mary grew even greater. Because I realized that Mary's calling was not just to give birth to Jesus. At Christmas time or during Advent, we tend to focus on the birth of Jesus. We have like the nativity plays and we just sort of end the story there. But the story did not end there for Mary. 
Mary got pregnant outside of wedlock, and then Joseph praised God. God gave him a supernatural dream, telling him to marry her. So Joseph did marry her, and she gave birth to Jesus. But then life went on. Then Mary had to raise her son and be the mother of the Son of God. And as strange as it is to contemplate what that actually means or what that actually might have been like, as I reflect on Mary's story, not just here in this one passage, but throughout the Gospels, I'm blown away by her faithfulness and her faith because she not only said yes to God, but she lived out her yes. Here in this passage, Gabriel prophesies about who Mary's son will be, and those words are confirmed by various people and events around the time of Jesus' birth. Those are, you know, many of them are parts of the nativity story that we're familiar with. The prophecies are confirmed by her miraculous pregnancy. Only she can know that it's miraculous, but for her, that's a huge confirmation. They're confirmed by Elizabeth when Mary goes to visit her. Elizabeth calls her the mother of my Lord. At Jesus' birth, his special identity is again confirmed by the shepherds and the magi who come to honor baby Jesus. When Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, Simeon, this man who hung out at the temple, and the prophet Anna also pray, prophesy over Jesus. And Mary ponders all these things in her heart, just like she ponders Gabriel's initial greeting. It says in Luke 2.19 that when Mary hears how the angels told shepherds about Jesus, she treasures all these words and ponders them in her heart. She holds all these words, promises, and prophecies inside her heart for 30 years. Because after Jesus' birth and these initial confirmations, there are 30, year, 30 years of Jesus living in obscurity, a fairly ordinary living with his ordinary mother. Jesus grows up. He, I guess, becomes a carpenter. Perhaps he studies the scriptures. Whatever he's doing, it's 30 years before Jesus does his first miracle. And in John's Gospel, John tells us that the first miracle Jesus does is turning the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And guess who nudges Jesus to do this miracle? Guess who hasn't forgotten, after all this time, who her son is and what God said he would do? Thirty years have passed. So many years of Jesus living as an ordinary person. You know, when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, they're, the people are so confused that he speaks so highly of himself, and they have a hard time believing that he's anybody special. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus isn't able to do any miracles in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. The vast majority of people in Mary's life had no idea who her son really was. But she knew. She treasured those words and promises in her heart for three decades. She didn't forget what the angel had told her about her son. She knew he was special. And Mary lived out her yes to being his mother. She loved him. She raised him. She prodded him to step into his calling. And at the very end, when he was crucified, publicly hung up on a cross to suffer and die, she was there. She didn't leave him. She was there the whole time. She even lived on after Jesus to testify to who he was. Ordinary young man. Mary is the first to hear the good news that the Messiah is about to be born. Nothing will be impossible with God, Gabriel tells her. This can also be translated for no word from God will ever fail. Mary took that to heart. 
She carried that promise through a lifetime of being the mother of our Lord and Savior, the Son of God. Mary heard the good news of God and that empowered her to say yes to God. Mary held on to God's promise and lived out her yes for a lifetime. What about us? Have we heard the good news of God? Are we hearing what God is saying to us? Or are we distracted by our fears and the limitations we've put on ourselves or on God? If we have heard, are we carrying those truths in our hearts? Are we pondering them? Are we saying yes to God and are we living out our yes? You know, there's a lot of bad news in the world right now. Even this past week, more shootings, wars continuing on, diseases spreading, inflation, financial stress. The holidays alone can be a stressful time. But amidst all of that, God has good news for each of us. The good news in this passage wasn't just for Mary, ordinary Mary who became super famous, special, and revered Mary. God's good news is for all of us. The good news that Jesus is still alive. Jesus wasn't just born 2,000 years ago. His spirit is with us right now. God no longer dwells in a temple, but inside of us if we invite him to. There's nothing, literally nothing, that can separate us from God's love because of what Jesus accomplished for us. No tragedy, no mistake, no fears, no shame, no evil powers, no circumstance that can block Jesus' love. And even when our worst fears happen or things in our lives don't make sense, life persists. God can bring life out of nothing, just like the miraculous life that God created in Mary's womb. God can bring life from death, just like the resurrection life that came after Jesus' death. Jesus is alive and his spirit is with us right now. May God give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand. May we be inspired by Mary's example of humble confidence and encouraged by the powerful way God used her simple faith. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your presence in this room. I thank you that you are so near to each of us, even in the ordinary moments of our lives when we forget about you. And I thank you that you do dwell with us in a special way when we gather together in your name. I just pray, God, that you would help increase our awareness of you. Would you help us hear and see and understand what you are saying to us and what you are doing? And for those of us who are in a discouraged place this morning, would you particularly come and speak your words of comfort and truth? Would you help us step back from our fears and from the limitations that we can see? Would you help us step back from our anxieties and be able to see you and to know that you are bigger and that you are greater, that you see us, you know, and you care so deeply? I thank you, God, that life comes after death. 
I thank you for that resurrection life that Jesus leads us into. Would you teach us how to walk in that life? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.